good morning, afternoon, or evening, and welcome to the Bloody Disgusting Network. The passage of time will now bring you to something strange, unique, and idiosyncratic. Have a good time. My friendship to all of you precludes my involvement with any one of you. But if you want to make love, then I do too, and I'll be right there behind you. Constant listeners, we're back on the Bag of Bones beat. This is Rockin' Randall Boneburn, and today, on the heels of our two-part series on 1998's Bag of Bones, we're here to discuss its 2011 adaptation on A&E. Before we get started, though, I'd like to introduce my fellow bags. Uh, Mel, say hi, and tell us what familiarity you had with A&E's Vagabones miniseries heading into this. Hi, uh, this is Mel. I, I didn't think of anything. So just imagine the like noise that every movie uses where someone gets hit by a bus. It's like always the same <laughs> recording of the like, Nier! and like, yeah, so that's the, in the middle of their castle. Um, I had absolutely no idea that this existed. It was, in fact, I think both of you that like brought it up to my attention. Uh-huh. Um, didn't know that it had been adapted into anything, much less a miniseries with Pierce Brosnan. Was very excited to watch it because I heard it was bad. Well, was it? We'll f- let's find we'll out, find over, out. The, over the next hour or so. Uh, Dan, say hello. And what familiarity did you have with A&E's Bag of Bones miniseries? Uh, this is Dan Noonan, Mike Noonan, Flieger. <laughs> uh, it was great to see 007, 00 Noonan, I guess we call him. <laughs> Um, yeah, I, I wasn't too familiar with this either. I knew it existed. Um, I did not realize it was a miniseries, though. And, uh, yeah, A&E. When I think A&E, I think Maximum Entertainment. Yeah, this was, um, I, I saw the ads for this, and but I remember just not particularly being interested because, uh, A, it was on A&E, and I was like, I don't know. I, I, I think I've been That's burned. That's arts and entertainment. You know? <laughs> what do you not like... <laughs> I think I've been burned I, at this point, especially I've been burned by too many uh, straight to you know TV uh, adaptations of King's books, and and I don't even think I was like I wasn't really deep into King around this time. Although around 2011 was I because like I sort of like hiatus from King for probably about five or six seven years, and then I what brought me back in was Under the Dome, which I, which was, I probably read that year because um, I perhaps this was what. Uh, piqued my interest again in King. But what I remember was reading the AV Club's review by Zach Hanlon, which is a pretty glorious pan, which we'll discuss um, in a little bit. But I remember being very amused by that review and uh, sad that Bag of Bones was, um, you know, did not turn out so well on screen. Uh, It was never my favorite King book, but uh, but I I had a lot fonder feelings for it before I reread it uh, when... (laughs) 
<laughs> Isn't that if, always the way? <laughs> yes. If you want to hear uh, Mel and Flieger and I's thoughts on, on the book, as well as Anna Marie Cox, you can listen to our two-part series. Although, I don't know why you're you're listening to this if you haven't listened to that. Um, maybe you're someone who just really loves the Bag of Bones miniseries and has not read the book. I'd love to meet that person. I was going to say, quite honestly, if that is the case for you, can you get in touch? Because I just want to know what you thought and like yeah. Yeah. struck maybe, you. Maybe they're just an A&E completist. They might be. I, I would, because there is so much bizarre plot stuff, because that's the thing about this adaptation is that it really does try to cram everything from the book, uh, well, almost everything, into this story, all the plot. And King himself admits, uh, as we discussed in the last episode, uh, there are buckets of plot, is how he described it. He said it's a book and a half, uh, and this is a miniseries and a half, I, I think. There's a lot going on here. Uh, we're going to break break it all down in a section we call the Dairy Public Library. Mike Hammond, if you see... Hey, excuse me, sir! Do you have Prince Albert in a can? You do! Well, you better let the poor guy out. Well, that, well, that, well, that. Tell Mike Hanlon that I had to go, that I had to get cleaned up. Tell him. Tell him. Tell him I'll see him tonight. Get out. Last chance, don't you? Get out. Get out. All right, here we discuss the background. So this was directed by Mick Garris. This was uh, Mick Garris's... Uh, Stephen King regular, his final miniseries that he directed uh, from King's work, at least thus far. Uh, I mean, but Garris has worked on, you know, the Stan miniseries, the Shining miniseries, the Desperation miniseries, which, Flieger, you were on that episode. Yes. Yeah, that was a rough one. Yeah. Uh, and I think Mick, this was... what's going on? <laughs> yeah, I, I have some thoughts there. Yeah, yeah. And we can talk about that. Um, it was uh, scripted by someone named Matt Venn, uh, and... It aired in 2011 on the a e Network in two parts across two nights. This uh, was kind of most notable at the time for Pierce Brosnan's return to television. Um, he was made famous in the U.S., at least, on Remington Steel, the 80s TV series, which was, uh, you know, Bond. I, I never watched it. I'm, I'm just guessing it was sort of a pre-Bond Bond, uh, or at least before he played Bond. It was sort of a perfect tryout for it. Uh, I've, Mel, I know you didn't watch Remington Steel. How about you, Dan Flieger? <laughs> I think they made a movie about it because I know he had in, in his contract, he was not allowed to appear in a suit or a tux in another movie because they wanted to keep the James Bond image together. But I believe there was a Remington Steel movie. Like, following well, Remington the- Steel was a series that aired from 1982 to 1987. I'm on its wiki. Uh, the series <laughs> blended the genres of romantic comedy, drama, detective procedural, and towards the end of the series, international political intrigue and espionage. Man, this sounds good. Yeah, uh, I kind of want to watch Remington Steel. Too bad we can't review that. Stephen oh, King's Remington yeah. Steel. I say the Thomas Crown Affair is what I'm thinking. Of. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I remember that movie. Yeah, so Pierce Brosnan, that was kind of his big, that was kind of how everybody, a lot of people got to know him was on Remington Steel. And uh, so it was a big, and then he became a big movie star with Bond and then, um, you know, a lot of other things. We'll, we'll discuss Pierce a little bit more later. But yeah, this was kind of marketed in a lot of ways as uh, Pierce's return to television. It was a big get to get him uh, because, you know, he's a, he's a, something of an A-lister. I was going to say, there's a porn star named Remington Steel as well. Really? Yeah, you think the name, they'd sue like, him? <laughs> I think it's a pretty unethical business already. Well, who, so. was fir- who was first, though? <laughs> well, who's last is what's more important. But Keep it PG, Flieger. 
Uh, <laughs> yeah, Fleeger, don't, don't make us kick you out. <laughs> the project started with a company called Senate Entertainment and another one called Headline Pictures. They secured the rights to the novel, and they uh, contacted Mick Garris to direct. And, um, yeah, getting Pierce was, I think, sort of the big thing that kind of secured its existence. Uh, it was filmed in Nova Scotia, and um, I've got a few bits of, of trivia here, uh, some interesting stuff. Uh, singer Kelly Rowland from... Destiny's Child was originally cast in the role of Sarah Tidwell. Uh, she was replaced by Anika Noni Rose, um, from who was, I believe, on The Good Wife at the time. She's in a lot of stuff. Uh, Kelly Rowland, um, probably a few years before this, was in a little movie called Freddy vs. Jason. Thoughts on her performance in that? Uh, there's the part that Freddy says, yum, dark meat, when he kills Oof. her. She oh, also awful. She also says a very naughty word, and that um, that would get you yeah, in trouble says, these days. But well, we don't slur. have to say what I, I it was is. On, I was on the episode of uh, Halloweenies reviewing that. Oh, really? Yeah. What What was the general consensus on Kelly Rowland? Um, I think she was fine. The movie's kind of all over the place. I enjoy it, but it's a pretty crazy film. Yeah. Um, a few other bits of trivia. Uh, this movie also stars Matt Frewer, who's been in more King adaptations than any other actor. He played Trash Can Man in The Stand. Um, he was in Desperation. He's in a and then he was in Riding the Bullet. I know that. And then uh, or one of those. Yeah. So he was in a he's in a lot of stuff. He play he plays a character who's not in the book. Uh, in this, he plays uh, Mike Noonan's brother. Um, and it turns Sorry, out his gay brother, his gay brother, important. which ends up becoming a plot point. And uh, but this was not the first time Pierce and Matt appeared together in a movie. They were also together in 1987's The Fourth Protocol. Uh, Mel, your thoughts on The Fourth Protocol? <laughs> it just sounds like a movie I'd really enjoy. <laughs> it sounds I'm, I'm like not, a... I'm not being facetious at all. Like I, that title is <laughs> great. It sounds like a made up Seinfeld movie. Um, it like, does. Like Death Blow or <laughs> Chunnel. Um, Pierce Brosnan is the second James Bond to appear in a Stephen King adaptation. Barry Nelson, who played James Bond as an American in a television production of Casino Royale, also appeared in The Shining. Yes, this is <laughs> truly trivia. <laughs> <laughs> I just love these absolutely pointless bits of trivia. Um, although it is kind of fun to learn that there was an American James Bond. Um, I did not know that. Never heard of Barry Nelson. Um, but... Uh, bless him. So yeah, uh, this it has a 48 on Metacritic, uh, this miniseries does. Uh, but some glowing reviews, I, I read several actually, one in Entertainment Weekly, they say, unlike lesser writers, King is often effective when he crams in as many forms of fear as possible into one tale. Bag of Bones is occasionally hokey, and Brosnan overworks his mad cackling, but the production is never less than creepily engaging. And yeah, there was a couple other very positive reviews. Uh, the People Review, they uh, they praise Pierce Brosnan. And he remains totally believable, whether he's borderline batty or bravely resilient. So a lot of love for uh, Pierce in this. Not everyone. Um, Glenn Garvin's Miami Herald Review states that Brosnan is, is continuing the bloody war on his own career. He began with <laughs> Mamma Mia. Any Mamma Mia fans here? That's like the only other thing I've seen him in. <laughs> Are you serious? Yeah, Have you I never seen, seen Mrs. Doubtfire? Bond. Oh, no, I've seen Mrs. Doubtfire. I, the thing about Mrs. Doubtfire is that it came out like 30 years ago, and Pierce Brosnan looks the same in that as he does now. Yeah, he's and, very, um, handsome, very handsome man. 
Well, and that's the thing is he was almost, I never watched Remington Steel. So, and the Bond movies, like he always read as like around 40, but very handsome. And then he's the same in Mrs. Doubtfire. And that kind of never ended. He's always around 40 stuck. Yeah. and extremely handsome. But it's like, in my mind, since I never watched Remington Steel, where perhaps he was baby faced, I don't know. But I just like to assume that he came out of the womb with like a five o'clock shadow. Or, like, he's stuck at that age. If we shook him real hard, like, he would suddenly age rapidly. Something would jostle, <laughs> jostle loose and he would, like, crumble into dust. Dorian Gray situation. In our friend thread, we were chatting recently about him because he has a net worth of $400 million estimated. And I was like, Does he you know, own he's a not whiskey in, company or something? I, I think he's big in real estate. Like, he's oh. listing a home right now for, like, $100 million. But I think he just made wise investments because he wasn't in a ton of movies, you know, it's one of those things where I'm like, maybe in England he's more famous and has a bunch of projects, but I feel like, yeah, other than Mamma Mia, Bond, and a couple other things, that you don't see him very often. Stay yeah, safe. well, Bond was pretty big, and uh, they probably he's... gave him so much money to do Mamma Mia. Yeah, I can't even imagine. He's going to be in the DC universe uh, coming up next as Dr. Fate slash Kent Nelson in Black Adam, starring Dwayne The Rock Johnson. Uh, he was also in Amazon's Girl Boss Cinderella, uh, starring Camille Cabello. Uh, <laughs> the movie like isn't to... actually called Girl Boss Cinderella. <laughs> it's just called Ella or just Cinderella. I feel like as I'm reading this, I'm just aging like rapidly. <laughs> the opposite of Pierce. Yeah, I'm looking at, at some of his uh, his credits. And yeah, he hasn't been particularly um, uh, prolific. Um, over the last several years, although he had a great role in Eurovision Song Contest uh, starring um, Will Ferrell that came out last year. Uh, not a great movie, at least I didn't think so, but uh, but he was really good. He played Will Ferrell's dad, which um, <laughs> who knows how that how they got us to believe that. But uh, but yeah, I'm like I'm scrolling here and um yeah, it's like he really hasn't had a lot of huge uh, big hits. But yeah, man, he's just busy uh, doing the real estate thing, which good for him. I would live in a house that Pierce Brosnan lived in. Um, At the same time? Yeah. You want to be oh, roomies? Yeah. I would love to be roomies yeah. with Pierce. Like, just he seems cool. Sip like, coffee play, together in the morning. Just like wake up and play tennis. <laughs> yeah. What if, he was, what if he just always had one of his Bond movies play? Ah, <laughs> <laughs> uh, Randall, have you seen this one? Uh you're like, the yes, world Pierce. is not enough. Yes, okay, Pierce, yeah, I've that's seen a good it. one, Pierce. Pierce, you left the toilet seat up again. Oh, I'm sorry, my friend. I'm sorry. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I must have done that over there. Yes, I'll go oh, yes, you have to forgive me. My mind, it's slipping a bit. <laughs> I'm 97. I'm 97 <laughs> years old. You wouldn't know it by looking at me, but uh, okay. Uh, the New York Times says. Um, that's not to imply that there's anything especially silly or cheesy about this film. It's an entirely respectable adaptation, which of course is a large part of the problem. Handsomely shot and deliberately paced, it has a superficially cinematic quality, but it doesn't have the storytelling juice to keep you engaged in Mr. King's convoluted multi-ghost story. Uh, the King veteran Mick Garris, uh, directing from a screenplay by Matt Venn, delivers some effective jolts of horror early on, but seems to lose his touch as the story makes progressively less sense. <laughs> I think that's, we'll you talk about that. You need that juice, man. Yeah, man. Yeah, that, it's weird that superficially cinematic, can I say? Because that, to me, that would be like an insult. Like, it, it only barely it feels is. like a <laughs> film. But, you know what I mean? Like, and, and I think that was a problem I had, was it did feel very made-for-TV yeah, there's something there's like a sheen to it that you're just like this is lesser quality. Yeah, yeah. 
And then AV Club's review, lots of good quotes in this one from Zach Hanlon, a uh, great writer. Uh, Bag of Bones is one of the funniest pieces of television I've seen all year. <laughs> Only two things keep it from being a classic. One, it's four hours long, uh, including commercials. Two, it's not supposed to be a comedy. Uh, the, the length is more problematic because stretched over two nights, Bag of Bones is as much an endurance trial as it is an example of unintentional hilarity. And I can't really recommend it to anyone without serious reservations, even if you are in it just for the yucks. Um, a few other quotes here. King's protagonists tend to be solid everyman types, generally uncomfortable in displays of serious emotion, which means that every time emotion does surface, it's intense and shocking. What this translates to on screen is Brosnan looking like he's going to burp, fart, and sneeze simultaneously every 10 <laughs> minutes or so. <laughs> um... There are no relationships here, no rising action, no catharsis. Instead, you've got some goofy jump scares, a lot of bad dialogue, and a former James Bond vomiting against a tree. That's the best part. Yeah, Je- Mel literally screamed, oh my God, oh my God, oh my God, when he vomited. And it was, I wrote that in my <laughs> so notes did Randall. it made me laugh. I did too. We did it at the same time, yeah. I saved my favorite uh, review for last, though. The New York Daily News is David Hinckley, um, set of Brosnan... Brosnan's participation provides some star power, though it isn't his most inspired performance. Uh, He does a decent job in a role that feels like it was written for Treat Williams. Absolute sick burn, um, I think, but am I the only Treat head here? Are you guys Treat fans? I mean, I haven't thought of him since like the 80s. Like occasionally I'll watch an old movie and be like, oh, there's Treat. And I think, who would name their kid Treat? Well, I think he's a treat to watch on screen. That's for sure. Uh... Treat Williams is one of the great handsome actors. Uh, this man is very good looking. He's probably been, he's been, according to IMDb, he's been in uh, 130, he has 130 credits, uh, which is a lot. And um, man, this guy's been going at it. I, I know Treat primarily from uh, him being in the sequels to the movie The Substitute starring t- uh, uh, Tom Berenger. <laughs> in The Substitute... Failure is not an option. He plays Carl Thomason. Um, this guy's great. Um, so I'm a big Treat fan. Yeah, horror fans might know him from Deep Rising, which was a 1998 horror movie. Came out the same year as Bag of Bones about um, a cruise ship that was overrun with a kind of uh, monster. And uh, I remember it was very gory, or at least that was its selling point at the time. And I remember Explain I liked it. Explain to me I, why this is an insult. Well, I think it's because Treat Williams is the kind of person who does a lot of TV movies and um, perhaps uh, less respectable projects. Treat's kind of a hired gun. He has no uh, uh, qualms, I think, about doing TV movies and lesser material, which I think for some people is part of the appeal. Uh, this is a guy who will, you know... Like, uh, he'll do anything. And he's got a great yeah, yeah. career. You see, he's on, a, he's on an episode he's of The slut. Simpsons. He's a slut. He's in, um, he was on White Collar, if you're a fan of that, for many episodes. Um, and also, you know, he's the kind of guy who, like, pops up in an episode of CSI Crime Scene Investigation, you know? Yeah. Chicago uh, Fire as well. Yeah, multiple Chicago Fire episodes, Blue Bloods. This guy's all over. I love Treat Williams. Just because I, I wish that I had the energy of Treat Williams. Um, this guy rules. So, yeah, I can see, though, what that comment means, which is that treat you're better or pierce you're better than this. This is what treat does. You're stamping (laughs) on his territory. And and I have to say, I think treat would have killed it in this role. So um, that's my take on that. The AV Club review, I remember it vividly because it was so it was so nasty. But also, I love the review because it's it's never like fuck this movie. It's just like um 
it's hard for like, you know, you can hear the writer just kind of being like, I'm trying to convey why this is funny and it's really difficult, you know, mm-hmm. like it's not the room, you know, it's not an Ed Wood movie. It's 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 funny in in a lot of different ways. And I think we're going to try to touch on some of that, too, because there is a lot of humor here um, that's, you know, some perhaps intentional, most unintentional. Um, but I actually found myself enjoying it more than I expected Uh for a couple of reasons. One, my, my expectations were very low. And uh, two, I'm not a big fan of the book, or at least I've recently discovered that. Uh, three, um, compared to Desperation, uh, Mick Garris's De- Desperation, this is like Citizen Kane. Uh, Desperation is a really, really rough watch. And one that had a lot of uh, problems, I think, when they were filming and, and it suffered for that. This one at least feels like, uh, you know, they had a good time on set. Um, and I can give it credit for that. I guess, like, what are what are sort of your your takeaways after you finished watching it, Dan? Was this a, a miserable watch for you, or did you find moments of joy and levity in this? Um, I thought there were some pearls of horror in this. Mm-hmm. Uh, this is a lot scarier to me than the book. Oh like, yeah, this this really plays up the horror elements. There's a lot of jump scares. I thought the makeup on some of the corpses was really good. Um, sort of like the Shining, the Room Two Thirty Seven woman. Yeah. Um, some of the corpses, it just, I thought it was good. That was where Mick Garris really shined. It, you know, it has, it, it reminded me of like a Tales from the Crypt episode yeah. at times. Um, pacing was a little bit off, didn't need to be two and a half hours. Definitely some changes from the book, which I'm sure we'll talk about later. But yeah. th- there was enough that I can mine enjoyment out of it, and I thought it finished pretty well. But long stretches of nothing happening, and then suddenly someone just gets hit by a bus. That <laughs> kind of describes the movie to me. Yeah. I, I think that's correct. And, and yeah, the monster stuff is interesting. I think it's sort of a Garris special. And when you say Tales from the Crypt, I think that's the perfect comparison because it is sort of that haunted house horror, you know, like when you go to a haunted house and things jump out of the wall at you, uh, that kind of, you know, obviously fake, but made with love kind of vibe to it like thriller kind of zombies, which McGarris was in uh, the thriller video. Yeah. It, I was saying it's funny you mentioned haunted house because that's one of my favorite sequences from the book. And there yep. is no haunted house in this. They go to the carnival and then get chased into a barn full of hay. Well, Whereas no, in the book, let's not. Bunter is <laughs> is heavily featured. Bunter. Bunter's there, but the haunted house, you know, in the flashback scene where Kyra is supposed to be having fun and enjoying the spooks and scares, is not in the movie. Oh, you're talking about you're the talking one, about the fun house. Ha- oh, like the, the fun actual fun house, house yeah, at the yeah, fair. Haunted, yeah. The, yeah, that haunted house, like the in the fair. They said, "Sorry, sorry, Mick, we we can't get a fun house, but we've got a barn." Lots of hay in here for you to hide behind. Yeah, Mel, your thoughts. Uh, we watched this together, uh, and we had a lot of thoughts. But what, how would you sort of characterize your feeling during and after uh, Bag of Bones? Um, it's funny, Randall, just talking about the Haunted House vibe. You were making fun of the Mick Garris gimmick of just you're holding someone, and it's a corpse, which yeah. happens like four times Multiple in times, the movie. yeah. Um, very close together. It, it does take itself way too seriously. It is trying to enforce an air of gravitas that Pierce really undercuts, um, <laughs> but also the the strange storytelling undercuts. I will say that I'm actually, I actually think the changes that it makes from the book are really, really smart changes, and they would work if there was a lot of follow through to them. There just isn't. Um, I think that someone kind of really put thought into what would make a better movie or miniseries from from this long narrative and was like, well, it would be cool if this curse, it actually even makes more sense if this curse affected Lance and then Maddie had to kill him 
Um, and Max DeVore is really, really mad about that. Yeah. Um, they almost can't explain the sort of Stephen King brand of villain that's like <laughs> so evil that you just have to believe it, you know? Um, so, and there was probably too much to fit in, but things like making Joe a painter, um, giving her like, you know, an actual studio where she had her own <laughs> career, um, respecting the fact that Maddie has absolutely no character and diminishing her <laughs> role in the book a little, or in the story a little bit. Oh yeah, we'll talk um, about that in our next section. There's some of much these, to discuss there. Some of these choices left me feeling a little hopeful and intrigued, um, but then... It was just, it was just so laughable. The, like, the fuckable tree, the very mm-hmm. um, aughts-ish jerky filming that they do. We were talking about these dream sequences and, and things like that, that that looks kind of like a music video to me that just doesn't ring truly scary. Um, I, yeah, I there didn't... was a lot of the, uh, there was a lot of sort of the quick cut with mm-hmm. the crackle in between it, which is very saw, very music video. Um, it was very much uh, like indicative, I think, of the horror trends of the time. It's actually and, really yeah. hard to know what... <laughs> like, I would like to have known what the main focus was for the people making this. It seemed like they didn't have one. They were kind yeah. of just trying to make up for the novel's shortcomings, and they ended up with this thing that did that in multiple ways, but they didn't actually consider like, what would be a good focus for the film? Actually, what, what should the film want to do other than make up for the novel shortcomings? hundred percent. Oh, I think a lot of weird montages as well were squeezed into this. Like when he touched the tree and was puking, not only did the camera (laughs) shake, like you said, like a music video, but um, there was a scene though, where he was at his wife's coffin. And at one point he starts banging his head on the coffin And I just had to rewind that part because, you know, they're like, just go there and like start wailing and throw your arms around. And then he just starts <laughs> banging his head. And it was so funny. Yeah, you got to You got to say at least Pierce was like he was in like he 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 knew what he signed up for and he was ready for it. I don't agree. If I think Pierce is so bad. At I mean, he well, is no, giving it his all, but that's his what all I'm is saying. very bad. <laughs> oh, yeah. Well, I think it's like maybe Pierce has this like really direct sort of energy that. You can tap into sort of, uh, you know, the things that made him bond, like the casual coolness. I think asking uh, Pierce to wail and gnash (laughs) his teeth is not perhaps his strength. Or laugh at all. This is where Treat Williams, I think, would have uh, really brought the goods. Yeah, man. Um, So, but yeah, so you mentioned changes from the book. I just want to touch on those pretty quick because it is a pretty faithful adaptation overall. But you did mention a few of the key... um, uh, changes, which is specifically that uh, Maddie's relationship with her ex-husband, who is the son of this billionaire, uh, who is super evil, they found a way to sort of, which is sort of like a really easy like fix that King should have done too, because one of our struggles with the book that we discussed is that the real curse and the real thrust of the of the evil that simmers beneath this town is something that really doesn't get a chance to breathe in this very long book. It kind of surfaces in the second half of the book and is really crammed in there in terms of understanding the nuances of the curse, and which is essentially that um, because uh, a group of men um attacked and sexually assaulted assaulted and drowned the son of uh this um uh black singer who had visited the town a hundred years prior uh because of that her spirit haunted the town and essentially forced all of these uh bloodlines to drown one of their children um and it's it, like only a, the fathers too like the it's fathers never the mothers. yeah 
Yeah, and it's already kind of a, a sloppy and messy uh, curse in terms of understanding it, which is only exacerbated in the series because, as as Mel and I had a good time <laughs> laughing about, there was just endless scenes of Pierce who instantly understands the, the nuances of the curse, explaining it to everybody he meets. And um, he's like, all right, let's break this down. And um, it's it's very funny. A hundred years ago. Yeah. It's, all right, we'll begin a hundred years ago. But also one of those changes is that he's new to the town, right? So there's this weird mix of like overexposition because it's needed because he doesn't actually know any of these people. Right, right. And that's another big change, which is that they he is essentially a stranger in this town. And um, whereas his wife visited uh, a lot more, that's how it was, right? Like, and he knew um, yeah. about it. He knew that she was coming up there without him. Yeah, she was movie, fixing up the house the and stuff. Whereas yeah. in, the, in the book, it's a big secret that she was going up there often. Right, right. And uh, and then also in this one, Sarah, the the singer, who is a big presence in this town, but in the book, she was on like her work was never recorded. Mm-hmm. Um, and here it is. There's many records we watch uh, Pierce listen to throughout yeah, I mean, this. You got to do that. You can't just be like, this woman was a great singer. We don't have any recording. <laughs> yeah. No, I thought it was funny when he smashed the record, too, because I was like, that's an antique, man. Like, that's 100 years old. Yeah. Like, you shouldn't. Uh, one thing they changed too from the book is they entirely removed the lawyer uh, subplots. Yeah, yeah. So in the Guardian ad litem hearing, he's actually representing himself, which I thought was kind of odd. But they just didn't bother bringing in any of the high-priced lawyers, which I thought you know that would have just slowed the plot down. Yeah, it slows the plot of the book down too. Um, but yeah, I think there's there's a lot of other the thing, and we'll talk more about this in the next section, but. Yeah, the other big changes from the book essentially circle around backing away from some of the more sensitive parts of the book. The book deals a lot with with uh, the idea of systemic racism and uh, racism as sort of something that still haunts this town's roots. Uh, the crime against Sarah, it's hinted that it's racially motivated, and it obviously is because it's a series of white men attacking a black woman. But that aspect of it, it's more the curse seems more sprung from the idea of the assault and the murder of the child rather than something um, that speaks to the racial intolerance um, and, um, you know, the ugliness of the town that exists deep down. That's mm-hmm. something that King touches on there. And then also um, the stuff with Maddie, uh, one of the big struggles in the book is that Maddie is is half the age of Mike Noonan and he struggles with that and he talks extensively about uh, how young she looks and how much that turns him on. So uh, without those things, a certain a certain edge is lost from the book. Uh, I think in the latter part, it's a very good thing <laughs> that was cut, but what it sort of reveals is how little there is to the character outside of that, and we can talk more in a moment. But yeah, I do agree, Mel, that in, I think the real focus when you said, like, what is the focus here, they kind of made it all about the curse, and in doing so... It was they they set up a lot of that stuff earlier in the storytelling. And like you said, they incorporate Lance, who is Maddie's dead ex-husband, into that curse, which is not in the book. And they have Maddie have having killed him, which gives her at least a little more agency. But it's not really investigated much beyond that, mm-hmm. uh, which is unfortunate. That's sort of what you're hinting at, Mel, is that there's not much else. And they also point out that I feel like this wasn't made <laughs> clear enough in the book that the real danger of Joe telling Mike about the about all this stuff or having him come when she's pregnant is that he will kill their daughter. Right. And like I I get that we can make those connections in the book, but for some reason it was watching the miniseries that made me realize like, 
oh yeah, shit, like that's why she has to investigate on her own. That's why she's so secretive at first. Right. Um, 100%. I don't know. It's and so convoluted. I know, but it's like, so that seems to be where a bulk of the storytelling was going. But then some of the motifs that the writing leans into has a certain, um, like, like what's the line that keeps getting repeated? It's about custody. Um, like custody Custody's has its responsibilities. Yeah, yeah. And that's a line from the book, but they repeat it so many times here. And I think I struggled with necessarily like, why is that the motif you're leaning into? That's baked into the plot to some degree, but I never really felt like I understood that relevance in an emotionally felt way, like in any kind of resonant way. Yeah, they're giving the veneer of marriage to a theme without yes. ever actually <laughs> marrying the movie to a theme in a way that is um what's the word i'm even looking for like committed <laughs> like yeah they, they just don't commit to anything it's all scattered. yeah exactly on that note i think it's helpful to discuss these things through the lens of the character so let's pop over to our next section heroes and villains i'm gonna have to kill this fucking clown so here, uh, let's talk a little bit about these performances slash the way these roles function. And because I hinted at it, I want to bring up Maddie here, who is played by Melissa George. Who looks great, but does not look 12 or however old Yeah, in the book. Supposed um, she's supposed to be three in the book, right? No, no, no. Like, You're she's thinking of 21. Kyra. She's th- oh, right. Sorry. Yeah, I'm confusing her. Yes. <laughs> She's 21 in the book, but Randall, you always bring this up. How old does he think she is when he first sees her? It's like 12 or 12 something. 12 to 14. 12 God. to 14 is what he initially thinks. And and there is excess, extensive discussion about how young she looks. And I don't know. And it's one of the weird... It's, I think, the subplot that we struggled with most when we were discussing the, the book. Because it doesn't feel rooted in any kind of real... Um, uh, revelation aside from the fact that uh, it just feels like a man who is struggling to justify his attraction to somebody who looks that young, a grown man. And in the end, the the kind of accumulation is like, okay, I've thought about this and I will have sex with you. <laughs> like that's essentially what the book, but then she gets killed. I've made my decision. <laughs> I've made my decision. I will sleep with you. And, uh, and yeah, and it's like, that sort of is the, but then she dies. And so, um, and then King even, well, the char- Mike Noonan even admits in the end of Bag of Bones that, wow, killing her off, uh, you know, before I have to do anything that actually compromises a moral question in any way. Uh, that's kind of a shitty writer's trick, isn't it? But it really happened. Um, and so, and he even, he's copped to that in interviews too. And I think it's one of the things about the book that, that really hurts it. But yeah, I guess I was really Should've struck. Should have made him siblings. <laughs> I will die on that hill. Yes. Oh, in the movie though, I don't think they interacted enough, Maddie and Mike. They had like two or three interactions and just seemed like there wasn't a lot of screen time. So there wasn't a lot of chance for that chemistry to develop. At least in the book, they're, running into each other, he's financing, you know, her legal battle. Whereas in this, it just seemed like they kind of were strangers in the night. It wasn't established enough that they it was actually an interesting, have this kind of... I can see why they made the choice to remove all of his assistance, financial and otherwise, from the plot, because it just deepens that questionable power dynamic. But you're right in that, like, I, yeah, she is barely a part of the story. And when she does pop up, it is almost entirely up to her to be the seducer 
in this in this version, which happens in the book too, but we see more of her. And I don't know, like we get glimmers of something that might resemble a personality. And in this, it really is just like, I am a temptress. I am young. Like I have my own life. You don't get to know about it. I'm interested in you. <laughs> like yeah. that. that is her whole... They have that 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 scene where they're walking through the park and like all it is is his is him complaining and her asking about like his writer's life yeah. and like there's <laughs> nothing about her in there and like I, she is like so again just like bare bones functional there is no person there yeah and I think it just speaks to the idea that when you take away those struggles that Mike had the moral questions the idea of supporting her financially uh, the idea of being attracted to her when she's so young and has a young child when you take away those questions the character really there isn't much there and that's something we discussed in the book is that Maddie really only exists through this um, uh, this lens of sexuality and ownership um, on you know this this older man's lust is kind of her her whole character is kind of refracted through that and uh here it's they're kind of trying to make it more and the and melissa george probably reads as 25 26 in this um which is good for the you know it's like it makes us feel less queasy but i there's think there's absolutely it, no mention of an age difference at all like the yeah the miniseries does not touch it Right. Which was probably the right choice, but the problem is they didn't do anything to uh, build up the character, to make the character stronger, to have any real agency. Um, Like, it's cool that they had her kill her husband, but instead he just babbles about his writer's block. He just goes, how was it when you killed your ex-husband, you know? Um, Like, at least let us, like, investigate what that was like for her. Like, the idea that her that her ex-husband was trying to murder her daughter. It's weird that, yeah, they have to take out Mike's inappropriate lust and they're like, well, shit. What does that mean? We have to transpose the lust onto her, mm-hmm. and that's like all she can do. <laughs> like, yeah. I don't, yeah. What else is there? Yeah, I thought the choice. If, if we can talk about, was it Lance, right? The yeah. Ex-husband. That was kind of strange too. He that, was never her know, ex-husband. He's just her, her dead husband. Her, <laughs> yeah, I guess same. Whatever. Her uh, deceased husband. Um, it, I thought that was kind of an interesting take, though, of making him actually kind of a bad guy. And it gave more of a motivation to Max DeVore, I thought. Right. You know, I don't know if that, that would have come across had you not read the book. But in this, it's like, okay, he has a reason to not like Maddie. Right. Because she exactly. killed his son. Yeah. Yeah. And that's definitely one of the stronger parts, I think, in terms of this adaptation. But but yeah, like we said, it just the character really falls flat, which I think just speaks to this inability. You know, it's tough because there are certain characters it's just really hard to activate, I think, with King. We discussed in the Desperation episode that I, I pity the child who had to p- play David, who is like the... Um, uh, the the what like ten year old who's touched by God and basically like leads all of these people to the promised land and everything and it's a, it's an extremely difficult character on page and I can't even imagine bringing it uh, to life and and we I just talked a lot about how that that portrayal is doomed to fail because what it's rooted in is so incredibly difficult to portray on screen and I think that's in in some ways in a lesser uh, means but just like with Maddie I think a lot of what makes her interesting in the book is um, stuff that kind of simmers beneath the surface and that's not stuff that was really given an opportunity to shine here uh, Melissa you think George she was interesting in the book well, I think there was moments that were more interesting than what we get here. I think the conflict um, uh, the conflict between them was, I don't know, yeah, more interesting. 
Yeah, and like incorporating, like just you saw more of her engagement Mm -hmm. with the legal battle, the way that she was ostracized from the town because um, that's the power that Max has is he can basically flip a switch and the town will ostracize her. And that, you know, it can make you feel for her to some degree. But here we just don't get any of that. Uh, We get them about to consummate their relationship and then she gets shot in the head. And That uh, was like the most disturbing part of of the series for me. That's like yeah. getting, You're getting hit by a bus. And then she's got a hole in her head. Yeah. And that's another change, too, is the uh, instead of a drive by, it's like a sniper rifle through yeah. the window. But it's very yeah. sudden. It's just like, so it's like these long moments of nothing happening and then bam. Yeah. You want to talk about like a, a sort of, this is the opposite problem. The story is so unfocused and scattered, but the character work is so focused on Mike. Like, they should have just given her some of that time because Pierce clearly doesn't know what to do with all of it and is like <laughs> constantly talking to himself. And it's like, it, the camera's on him for too long. We need to go somewhere else. This is the perfect segue to talk about Pierce. And, and I think some of the <laughs> the, the lovely yet deeply strange uh, portrayal that he does here. And a lot of it has to do, I think, with the fact, you know, and this is tough in the book because Mike Noonan is, for the majority of the plot, alone in his house trying to write and struggling with grief and with memory and things like that. And the way that's sort of conveyed here is that <laughs> Mike is never without a photo of Joe. She's on his computer screen. She's uh, in his memory. She's everywhere. And he, uh, so he just talks to her constantly. And he's, he's uh, like, there you are. <laughs> Hello, I'm not I'm not kidding. <laughs> no, it's literally just every time he turns on his computer, it's like, oh, yes, there you are. Oh, my. Oh, Joe, you wouldn't believe what I've gone through today. It really just feels like like he's, they're just like, all right, Pierce, just go talk to Joe. One what do you want to say I, to her? That I actually really did appreciate that I thought was a good callback throughout the movie was him being like, um, once once for yes twice for no like he tried he was trying to like communicate with this the ghost in this way and like eventually it does come to fruition but it starts yeah. very early on you can tell they're tr- again you can tell they're trying to fix the flaws of the book by front loading some shit so yeah. that it carries through so that it is cohesive and it it just it still doesn't work because there's too much and they don't know where to sort of lean in but <laughs> right i mean the hard thing about the book is that w- the real like the real fulcrum of it all is what happened to Sarah, the uh, singer from, you know, a hundred years ago. And, but that character is so like, she's such a part of the background of the story yeah, for so she's long. Again. Yeah. And I think it's like, because the focus is so much on Joe and the question of, is the house haunted by Joe? And then the Maddie storyline comes in. And then the Sarah stuff just... And the, I can see the show trying to... Like, they're straining to yeah. show us more of her early on. I think the, the scene... Pierce being like, oh, Joe, we're not alone here, are we? <laughs> <laughs> exactly. And then they have... Um, he listens to the records. He's transported. Mm-hmm. The, the she's dream paint, of she's this... She's painting her portrait. Yes. And the dream of the uh, of the circus happens earlier mm-hmm. uh, in, the, in this uh, adaptation. But the problem is that character is just not emotionally front-loaded in the same way that Joe is. So yeah. we feel like we're waiting and waiting and waiting for Joe. Especially when all every Pierce scene is just him just being like, oh, another day of not writing, Joe. What do I do, Joe? Yeah. Oh. The, the, uh, the... your bell for me. <laughs> yeah. The right. Writer's block scenes are weird because that's very hard to capture on film. Yeah. And again, it was, you know, it, I, I agree, too much too much Pierce 
on the screen because it's him being like, all right, here we go. And uh, he had to explain mm, yeah. to the caretaker. He was yeah. like, sometimes we would fuck on this couch. And we yeah, that, was a weird, <laughs> that was a very weird, like you just met this guy and you're going to be like, oh, when me and my wife used to have sex on the couch, this guy would watch. And the guy kind of like, Gives him a look like, oh. and then Pierce gets sad thinking about his wife, and the guy's like, "All right, well, I'm gonna get out of here." <laughs> I know. <laughs> and they, yeah, him. they don't know each other, so it's weird. I mean, some of the choices were, were so strange in this in this series. Well, yeah, and then we also get like Pierce talking to like when he's trying to talk to Joe. It's just hard, like the concept of he's like, "Joe, was that you? Are you upset?" <laughs> he like, asks these questions like that, and it's just like, "Did you do this?" Um, and that's, I think, it just, it, it rings as false. It's extremely difficult, I think, to convey uh, that concept of talking to a ghost that's haunting your house. And it's, uh, right. it's, You're making yeah. me more sympathetic towards Pierce. They really did give him a bit of an impossible ask. <laughs> well, and he has to play Manic so often. I was going to say one thing, too, if you compare this to Shining, when, the, uh, when Wendy finds the all work and no play makes Jack a dull boy typed out over and over, it's a really impactful scene. You get very scared. Versus this, when he has the repeated text on the <laughs> laptop, you're like, well, you could just copy, copy and paste. And paste. Yeah. Like, it's not that hard to fill, like, hundreds of pages. You could literally double it every time. So he's just like, wait, did I type all this? And you're like, well, clearly it was just copy and paste. Yeah. And they also have to, condense, just... they have to condense everything. So they're like, we don't have time for, like, him to find the record. Just put the lie under the owls. And, like, yes. he'll get the giant bag of lie to pour on the bones. Which is, it's such a stretch, you know what I mean? Like, the idea that lie still, bag of bones, like, that's what that's what you take from it, you know? Yeah. It's just very silly. But, but, yeah, I think just... We, I think Mel and I also just pointed out that there reached a point, I think, in the second part where Pierce just started narrating, like, everything he was doing. So we're just watching. He's like, oh, have a sip of my coffee, and uh, perhaps I'll go over here. Any ghosts over here? Any ghosts over here? Some milk from the fridge? Uh. And so it was just, like, it was just so much of him mumbling to himself that it just got really funny. And then as... um. But then he has to have these moments of revelation. This was hinted at in that AV Club review where they mentioned he always looks like he's going to burp and fart at the same time (laughs) or whatever. And I think that's very true because he has these visions or he has these moments of revelation. And he has to be manic, whether that's like manic wailing and crying or whether it's manic laughter. And uh, Mel pointed out, because there's many scenes of him cackling wildly. And Mel, you just pointed out Pierce is horrible at fake laughing. He is. I'm... Again, like, it's a hard script, and that kind of laughter probably doesn't come naturally to many of us, but he is a professional <laughs> actor, and so I expect a little more from him than these, than these like, really forced cackles. He, he's good when he's doing scene work with other actors and characters, but he's not interesting enough on his own to be able to pull off, like, even when he's eating a hamburger, he does it in, like, a exaggerated well, fashion. British. almost like they don't. But it's, I was going to well, say well, British. He's Irish. He's, he's Irish, but... Yeah, they, oh. you can tell though it's not. Uh, yeah, there is a difference. <laughs> Hundreds of years of war. Um, Sorry, but anyway, but yeah, but the way he eats the burger, it, it's almost like Tom and Jerry, like licking his lips and getting ready to take a big <laughs> bite and holding it two hands. It's just, you know, eat it like an American. Uh, it just he, he's not well, like th- a prop actor. You know what I mean? He needs to be on scene with somebody to really be effective. Well, I like, too, that they just kept his accent. Like, I think they're just like, Pierce, don't even try to do a main accent, which is a little bit confusing considering he's supposed to have roots in that town, you know, like that go back many years. And what's funny, too, because the other actors, the characters will be like, oh, so you're that hotshot writer. And I'm like, I think they would actually be calling out the fact that he's foreign and not American (laughs) also. But everyone just breezes over his accent. It's like Arnold Schwarzenegger where they're, oh, yeah, the guy's a mailman, but he has He's Austrian. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. 
no, I, I love that about it. And, um, but no, I love you mentioning like the burger and then, uh, yeah, there's just various behaviors. Cause like the, it, the, that's the thing about Pierce. Like when Pierce, when someone like Pierce Brosnan laughs, they go, ha, 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 you know, <laughs> it's like they have a very dignified, sophisticated laugh. They don't cackle like morons. And so, uh, like I do. So it's, um, or so I, it's or me. It, we all, yeah. all cackle like idiots on the show. It's funny to watch him. Like he bears his teeth and he's like, ha, 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 ha. It is like funny. almost exactly like that. <laughs> yes, and I love it. Uh, but it's also extremely bad. Um, so yeah, it's it's a really interesting performance, and I'd say if if there is any part of you that is drawn to hate watching and you're a completist and you want to watch this, uh, the best part I think is just these scenes of Pierce by himself wandering around, uh, mumbling to himself, and then the uh, then juxtaposing that with him cackling wildly. It's a really bizarre performance from an actor who really doesn't do this sort of performance very often. So, um, so I think it gets credit for that. Maybe he was trying to make a hard turn into heavy drama, but, um, yeah, it doesn't quite work. Um, any thoughts on Joe? Uh, we have An- Annabeth Gish in this role. I thought she was um, great. Like, yeah, I thought she they was cast, good. I liked that the, the casting was age appropriate for both her and Mike. Like, they looked like a middle-aged couple and she was very appealing. She was very likable. Um, I, I bought, I even, I, yeah, I'll say I bought their relationship at the beginning. Like they were cute. And yeah. her getting hit by a bus <laughs> was um, Oops. abrupt and, and funny. <laughs> yeah. I, I, I thought she was really strong too. And more so developed even than the book. And, you know, I like the, her appearing in town with his brother hinting at the possible affair, whereas in the book it kind of got stretched out of like, oh, she was here with his lawyer, but then, there, you know, there was a lot of back and forth. Yeah. I think the movie, the film handled it, a film, a miniseries, uh, handled it much smoother and like condensed that whole plot. But it was funny because anytime Maddie mentioned to Mike, like, oh yeah, he was here, she was here with another guy. Oops. And he's like, wait, what? What? And like Pierce just started freaking out, like <laughs> overacting. Annabeth Gish is in a lot of stuff these days. She's she's actually going to be in Mike Flanagan's new series, Midnight Ooh. Mass. She's one of the leads on that, it looks like. And um, uh, and she was also in his movie Before I Wake, which I think is kind of a mess, but it has its moments. Um, oh, she was in Haunting of Hill House as well. So she's a, she's entered that Flanagan universe. He, he loves his people. Um, so Loyal. Yeah, he's very loyal. Um, so, cool. And then... Um, Oh, and she was on uh, also in X-Files, Monica Reyes on the X-Files, many episodes. So cool. Yeah, I think she was good and less annoying. I think uh, having an actor who is, I think the thing about Joe and Mike's relationship is it's just extremely annoying throughout that book. And here I think it's just a lot more, uh, I don't know. There was just something that I think, I, I wouldn't say I felt like a white hot chemistry between the two of them, but I will say that their relationship at least was easier to stomach um, than the one that it is wasn't all centered around book. Mike. She gets to be a painter and yeah, we get to see her outside of Mike's <laughs> perception of her as a tool to use. Yeah. And she also gets probably the one of the better i think uh scares in it which mm-hmm. i'll say for the cemetery but um yeah and then uh not a lot of big characters in here when we talk about kyra who is three years old in the book she's looks like she's about six years old here probably just because it's not fun to work with a three-year-old um on set but i think you lose some of the uh the kind of goofy charm of having um you know a really young child around kyra i don't i can't remember her a single line she had in the movie so uh, unfortunately uh, this continues my streak of hating child actors in Stephen King <laughs> adaptations. Yeah, I, I so. think that was because 
uh, Kyra in the book was actually one of the characters I liked a lot. I just thought it was cute. Yeah. And she also is sort of a surrogate for the child that he lost, right? Because yeah. in the book, it takes place about three years later, so it would be about the age of her. Um, but in this, yeah, it's she's the actress looks like she's 10. She's portraying like a six-year-old, and she's speaking like a four-year-old. It was just yeah. very strange. And, you know, even when she's like walking down the middle of the road, it's a lot different to have a, you know adolescent doing it than a three-year-old yeah that's very true anika noni rose uh is sarah tidwell um it was nice actually i think one of the the benefits of the series is you do actually get to see her sing and um i think some of those sequences are are pretty lovely i think she's a very lovely singer they really toned those down too though they definitely made her into more of like a flapper style singer than like this body kind of burlesque singer um mm-hmm. which was i think again like this this miniseries is very risk averse <laughs> um, it's trying to minimize its risks i think one of the things that mel and i discussed throughout was that this this adaptation really takes the like was we we kind of categorized bag of bones as stephen king's horniest book it's it's extremely horny uh but you know the sex is by and large mostly bled out uh the relationship between maddie and and um and Mike is is very chaste and I think very sweet. And same with Joe and and uh, and Mike. Yeah, they completely sanitize the triple fuck dream sequence. <laughs> I was gonna say the triple fuck dream sequence, which is a highlight of the book, one of our favorite parts. Basically, it, it is as you mentioned earlier, Mel. Uh, Mike hugging three different women, each of them turning out to be corpses. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, it's kind of the same trick played three times in a row. And he's like, oh, which... what happened again this time? <laughs> I know it won't be this time. This woman is definitely a woman and not a dead body. Um, so yeah, I. But then the the thing is the one the one sex related thing they leave in is is a, a a fairly graphic depiction of sexual assault against this woman. True, they like they really went all the yeah. way with that one. It was like I, God. I was shocked. Yeah, especially yeah. considering like what Mel was saying too. The the series was mostly risk averse. And then you get this pretty graphic, like, held-on shot. It wasn't, like, cut up or anything, but it was just, like, we're going to... It reminded me of the movie Irreversible, which has a graphic scene, but the big thing is the camera doesn't really move in that movie, and the miniseries kind of did the same thing, which makes it much harder to watch. And what a tonal tonal nightmare in that sense. Like, yeah. you're just like, what am I watching? Mm-hmm. That's why and it would be fun to talk to somebody who watched this but hasn't read the book. Because how are you processing this thing? Right. It's just it so almost bizarre. Doesn't, it doesn't earn that how shocking no. it is based on everything leading up to it. Also, I thought the Sarah character was, I liked her better in the book. Just that she had that, you know, maniacal laughter. That was what her calling card was, was always laughing. And I, I agree if it was bawdier. I think I would have bought it more. There's only one part where she laughs during that scene. And it's, I think, when she, like, spits blood in the guy's face. And she kind of cackles and then just gets hit with a rock or a fist immediately. It it really is unfortunate that they have to flatten her further into an even more kind of saintly victim. Um, Right. Because there's a malevolence to that character in the uh, dream sequences. mm -hmm. Uh, I think one of the more affecting parts of the book for me are... One of the eerier parts was when Kyra and Mike were in the dream sequence at the circus and she was singing, she kept sort of leering at Kyra and Kyra was really scared. And I think the way it was written is that, yeah, you can see that um, you you are seeing like a version of that character, but it is one that, you know, has been corrupted to some degree. And I think that gives that just had more of an edge to it that I found um, impactful. Uh a&E leaned a lot into her in the marketing for the series, and they even released an accompanying EP 
Uh, wow. Called Sarah Tidwell, The Lost Recordings from Stephen King's Bag of Bones. It was six songs, songs that um, the actress sang, including It's the Same Whole World Over, Frankie and Johnny, Having Myself a Time, Motherless Child, Meet Me Tonight in Dreamland, and Brahms Lullaby. Um, and I'm looking at some of the reviews on Amazon. Uh, one says, just says music, five stars. <laughs> Uh, and another one just says sweet five stars. Um, and then one says three stars good enough for book club, uh, downloaded the music for a book club on bag of bones. The best thing I can say about the music is it is far better than the two part miniseries, which is the all time war Stephen King adaptation. <laughs> Read the book, download the music with the money saved from not buying the miniseries, get a nice burger and beer. Uh, thank you. Three people good. found this helpful. It's <laughs> like very specific advice. Yeah. Uh, so that's that's one i think uh that's like a very um i don't know i would say that's like savvy or or just kind of like invested marketing like that yeah you know not every movie or miniseries does that right right so didn't um, seem to work though and then i'm trying to see if there's any other character well max devore we have a a longtime character actor william shallert this guy's and yet uh, he was he he passed yeah he (laughs) passed away in 2016 uh but he was you know, his this guy was like on TV in the 50s and he was on the Patty Duke show, you know, old school. And yeah, I, I thought he was fine, um, but I wanted somebody nastier. I wanted somebody who was yeah. like, like drooling while they were they you know, preserved the whorelet line, which was a treat. Yeah, but... I appreciated that. Dan, thoughts on Max DeVore? Um, I guess I was comparing him to other villains in a wheelchair and I always go to Mason <laughs> Verger from, uh, you know, Red Dragon. <laughs> I think that's such a cool character. And this guy, I was just waiting for him Costly to get to that level has of its sinister. Responsibility. Yeah, that, that would have been so much scarier. Um, so yeah, I, I, he didn't really stand out either way. He didn't. He didn't seem as villainous as he was in the book. Yeah, I mean, there's such a sneering um, mustache twirling quality to the book that I think for the level of um, perhaps. Uh, What's the word I'm looking for? There's like, you know, there's a classiness, I think, that A&E was trying to achieve with this series with a lot of the uh, pastoral shots and having Pierce Brosnan in the lead role. I think um, there was like, a certain we classiness. We have him ask if her cunt sucks. There is yes, no way we're can't putting go that there. in there. Yeah, so we get the custody line instead. Um, last character I'll bring up, uh, perhaps my favorite character in the entire uh, operation was Marty. This is uh, played by Jason Priestley. Of Beverly Hills 90210 fame, Mel did not know who he was. Blew Sorry. my mind. Blew my mind. This guy That's was a common thing. I'm just not as steeped uh, in pop culture. I know. I'll say this. I so I didn't watch. I knew who he was, um, but I didn't know his name was spelled Priestley. I thought it was Priestley. I never watched 90210 or those shows, so I just heard it pronounced as Priestley. And then when I saw the opening credits, I was like, "Well, I learned something new." There you go. And that's a very important thing to know. I think uh, the great Jason Priestley. <laughs> Uh, this guy was, was hot to trot when I was ki- a kid. This guy, man, every girl in school had a crush on J- Jason Priestley and, uh, he looks great in Bag of Bones and he gets a couple fun little bits of King's Dominion as well. So, uh, great performance by Jason. Wish I'd see him in more. He pops up in things occasionally. He's uh, the gay brother? Lo- uh, no, he's, uh, the, the literary agent. The, uh, uh yeah, oh. the gay, gay brother is, uh, Max Headroom. Uh, yeah, Matt Frewer, who played Max mm-hmm. Headroom. Yes, okay. very wow. true. Okay, yes. I'm uh, can, I, can I mention one more, one more hero and villain? Yeah. Uh, Buddy Jellison. 
Mm. The guy who owns the diner, I could not tell if he was coming across as mean or nice. <laughs> because it, cause he, first he approaches Mike and he's like, you better stay away from her. And I was like, oh, he's like threatening him. But then it almost seems like he's warning him. Well, and then that scene, as I was trying to figure that out, it segues into some of the most awkward exposition. Yeah. Yes. Like the waitress comes as over and it's just like... Trying it's like to eat that minutes. hamburger. Yeah, Two people are coming I, over like, here's what you need to know about the town. <laughs> exactly. He keeps rising the hamburger up to his mouth to take a bite. And they're like, oh, but don't forget about this because <laughs> this was tied to that. And it's such an awkward and clumsy scene. But at the end, it seemed like Buddy was looking out for him. Well, I agree, Dan. And the thing is, though, they do make Buddy a villain at the end. And I also, I'm going to save that for our next section, Nightmares and Dreamscapes. But um, uh, Buddy... Yeah, he he ends up like you're right because he he he's introduced and there's something malevolent about him. But then he just comes and like pulls a chair up and he's like, "Time for a lesson on the town." And the way the actor plays it is like very amiable and very like cozy and and comfortable. Uh, where it's like, "I'm here to help you," and it, it yeah, and it does. I think it's a, it's not necessarily the actor's fault, but rather uh, a confusion on the part of the adaptation because. And I think too, the book struggles with this a little bit. Is like are the townspeople good or bad? Like, that's the... It's something that... Not that I necessarily need that to be distinguished, but the book seems to waffle on that a lot. Like, how deeply uh, involved are these townspeople in sort of the grander curse and what's going on with Mike? Um, There's, like, a tragic air to the idea that a lot of their ancestors had to kill their children. Uh, But then here, um, they're presented as... I think like where the some of these characters end up is we're supposed to be on the side that they're some that they are villainous. Um, and yeah, I think yeah. that's like a good way to pivot to our next section, which is nightmares and dreamscapes. If you think your dreams are disturbing. <laughs> imagine the nightmares of Stephen King. Here in Nightmares and Dreamscapes, it's very simple. We just talk about some stuff we liked those are the dreams and some stuff we didn't like those are the nightmares and i'm gonna kick us off just to segue this conversation uh i thought it was hysterically funny that um bill who is the caretaker and buddy uh both die in this adaptation (laughs) i don't know if you remember this but a uh like their car blows up somehow just like, like completely like yeah. it, it just crashes it com- into something and like and explodes. blows up it's like yeah. that simpsons episode where the kids are riding and they tip over the teacher's desk and it instantly sets on fire like yeah. it was it was that kind of moment randall yelled wait they die yeah. <laughs> yeah. it was like a sign collapsed onto the highway and their truck hit it and then came to an immediate halt and just exploded yeah, the physics and I, were wild in that scene. I think the reason I was so shocked by it was because it posits them as clear bad guys. Like, th- we're supposed to be happy that they died in the way that this is uh, framed. But it's not like they were the ones who shot Maddie. That's that crooked cop. Um, yeah, yeah. So, I think tonally, tonally it was difficult because I wasn't sure if they were being strong-armed by Max right, in the town. Or if right. they were actually, you know, of their own will trying to protect the secrets and it was just it was shifting back and forth ever since that diner scene. And I, I guess at the end they were evil and doing it of their own free will. Or they were they were people that died tragically. <laughs> <laughs> no, but it's the framing of it. It's like uh like it could have just been a thing, but it almost feels like A and E's like, wait, this is a king thing. Can you up the body count a little yeah. bit? And they're like, Well, we have these two doofuses. Uh we can have them uh blow up in a car. Um so yeah, that that scene to me made me laugh uh very hard because it just seemed like an unnecessary thing to do. Like they didn't need to die. <laughs> 
they didn't do anything that bad. Yeah. One thing um, I did like um, yeah. that I thought was very cool was the shot of Sarah rising out of the lake. Yeah, that was a cool um, shot. Very much like Lady in the Lake, Arthurian legend. But it, I thought that was actually like a really well-executed effect and very creepy. And also very like sexy, too. She was like dripping wet in this like form-fitting dress and just like floating. She was like, there's them. the horniness. Yeah, there's the I'm horniness. Yeah. Well, I was going to say, it started with the little horniness of uh, finish the book and have sex. But that was the <laughs> horniness I was waiting for. Uh, Lady in the Lake, that was the M. Night Shyamalan movie. Never no, seen. Lady in the Water is what you're thinking. <laughs> I know, of. I'm just being an asshole. Um, um, okay, uh, Mel, my, what's, something, what's something you liked uh, or something hated? I liked. Well, you I, hated also the, go I hated the fuck tree. Like, that was so funny. <laughs> so, like, like, describe the fuck tree for people. The fuck tree looks like the sinuous torso of a woman. <laughs> and Pierce, every time he drives by it, is like, oh. <laughs> like, it literally he, has a, a triangle like where the legs would be crossed. yes yeah i do think at one point later he like is kind of making moves on the tree like he i know that he, he gets pukes, intimate with the tree yeah, yeah he like the tree is just it's it's like almost as ridiculous as the scene in the last unicorn where that like buxom tree comes to life <laughs> um so that's that's funny to me and also that segues into the near the end where sarah tidwell's like cgi face is just floating mm-hmm. on the tree it's and it so looks bad awful yeah it reminds me of um at the end of the stand when mother abigail's face uh like hovers over the babies and um like is looking straight ahead despite the fact that she's supposed to be like talking to the baby and she's like hi now child you know but she's like staring straight ahead <laughs> not at the babies yeah. it's like one of my favorite moments. it's funny because in uh game of thrones the werewood trees have faces on them and it actually gets across as being pretty cool and having yeah. you know the characters can interact with it and it looks so it, it can be pulled off having a face on a tree but yeah. the effects here were just not good enough to do it. it Something like, tells me uh, A and E in 2011 didn't have the budget that Game of Thrones. Had. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> I'm thinking so. Um, but it, but it was weird too because it's 2011. It felt dated, but some of the technology felt current. You know, he had like a GPS on his car and like a oh, tablet. Yeah. Yeah. But the CG interface on them definitely felt marked by like mid 2000s right. early 20 aughts i don't know oh that's always <laughs> one of my favorite th- like even like up to a couple of years ago like somebody will get a phone call and you're like no phone has ever looked like that like it doesn't you know i love when like- they can do so much more that like than, than what than what things could ever actually do and they're just like you know like asking it questions as though it's a person and the phone is like that will take seven minutes or whatever <laughs> Yeah, the tree, the tree face is one of my favorite moments uh, just because and I, I just think about Stephen King being disappointed because when I was reading the the interviews uh, in our book episode, he talks a lot about the idea of faces in the trees and he talks a lot about the idea of magic and and horror and the concept of, of you know, uh, sometimes we think we see faces in the tree. But what if we actually are seeing faces in the tree? Like what if what if it's it's real after all? You know, it's like it's clearly a metaphor. And uh, something that he kept close to his heart when he was writing the book. And there's many references in the book to the idea of seeing faces in the trees. And then there is that conversation near the end. And uh, here it just looks so tremendously bad that I can just see King like, I crafted this beautiful metaphor and wrote it into my book. And <laughs> That's not this what is I what meant it looks like on the page. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so, yeah, that was definitely a rough one. Randall, were you pissed by the lack of a good... I mean, I, I actually struggle to think how they could adapt this to to carry the same 
weight of terror that it has in the book, but the rock throwing swimming scene, like we didn't talk about Rosette in the character part. I think she's, she's pretty relegated to the background, but there is, she just kind of lobs a stone yeah, at yeah, like a swimming I, mic. I was, when I had issues with eating a hamburger, I really had issues with her rock throwing. Cause clearly the actress does not know how to throw. And she's supposed <laughs> to be this like softball champion. They don't mention and anything about that was, in the, in the yeah, series. So I just figured it was, it was just gentle just lobs. <laughs> And, and it's one of the scarier sequences in the book is when he's in the water. He's like, man, if I get hit by one of these, I am going to drown, right? And yeah. in this, they just show his cell phone sinking and he, she throws like three rocks and he swims out. Whereas in the book, I think it takes up like several pages. Oh, yeah. They kind of missed out because drowning is a big theme throughout the story. And at no yeah. point did it seem like Pierce Brosnan was afraid of drowning. He just didn't want to get hit in the head again. Right. And there's a moment... Like, I remember Mel and I laughed because that's, like, for all the reasons you said. And then they kind of zoom out and the raft is, like, five feet away from him. (laughs) So we were just like, wow, that kind of sucks some of the air out of this scene. Um, I imagine it was very difficult to film. They're like, like, Pierce doesn't want to be in the water for more than five minutes. So, like, all right. (laughs) I can't get wet. (laughs) I'm Irish. You don't know what happens to us when we get wet. Um, So... I guess my other bit of, of, I already mentioned this a little bit, but I think it's, it's, it's a, it's a nightmare, but also I think I enjoy it. So I'm going to call it a dreamscape, but just, uh, the scenes near the end, the last half hour where Pierce is just relentlessly explaining the curse to everyone (laughs) because the, the book, the show knows how convoluted it is and it knows how poorly it's laid out. And Pierce has this perfect articulate understanding of how to convey a very complicated thing to people and I love those scenes because it's like you can just see the writer like on the edge of the shot like you know scribbling <laughs> furiously and um, and I pity him having to deliver those lines of dialogue. Any other bits of nightmares or dreamscapes from you guys? I think I've sort of sprinkled my dreamscapes throughout our conversation earlier. I do think some of the changes are are, are good. They just can't kind of like capitalize on them. Um and I, I like some of the things they try to carry through. I think some of the structuring, they're like, again, they're they're really kind of like, we read the book. We know we know it does some yeah. stuff wrong. Um, we'd like to rectify that. Do we know how to make a miniseries? <laughs> um, maybe not all the way, but. <laughs> yeah, I, I think some of the changes are good. Like, I, I like the curse. I thought that was way better explained uh, than it was in the book. I like the idea of multiple people killing their own children and, you know, how it kind of jumps the generations. Uh, one thing, again, comparing some of the actual acting, the scene when he, uh, Mike Noonan gets Joe's dress and like smells it and starts crying, when you compare that to like the most famous clothes smelling in Brokeback Mountain, right, and how impactful that scene is when Heath Ledger does it compared to Pierce Brosnan <laughs> doing it here, you just can't help but be a little disappointed, you know? It'd be funny if Pierce just is just like, I can't quit you, like while well, like, yeah, just directly just referencing it, yeah. It's like, I just can't quit you. Um, but yeah, but, but especially like it, this movie is made after Brokeback Mountain. So anytime you're going to have a closed sniffing scene, you know, the audience is going to have reference to that. So to not pull it off, shame. Oh, it's crazy no. that this movie is only 10 years old. Like, I know that's a little insane. Yeah. And, but, and that's sort of the weird disconnect with it is that a lot of the, like technology does feel within the last decade that's featured in it, but there is something kind of decidedly old fashioned about it. And I think a lot of that has to do with, with um, Mick Garris's uh, sort of the, his approach to horror, which is very eighties and, um, and very tales from the crypt and people don't, yeah, they don't really make stuff like that anymore. And so, you know, I pointed, like I I said to Mel, I'm like, like uh, Joe's ghost looks like 
the creature from the Black Lagoon? <laughs> like, cause like so many prosthetics and you like, were also rubbery. like, um, you're <laughs> when he digs up the bodies of Sarah and her child, like they're still fresh and gooey. Yeah, like, it doesn't make any sense. It's just they're another supposed way to be to get... skeletons. They've yeah. been there for for decades upon decades, and ske- and the skeletons like still have like gooey skin on them. It's just very strange, and. Uh, Although I think we were both disappointed that the skeletons didn't come to life when he started pouring the lie on them. We were hoping they would start going like, ah. Yeah, I wanted like some Jason and the Argonauts shit. Yeah, Yeah, that would have been cool. The the skull sort of emerged from the face ripping open, but I couldn't tell if that was just the lie acting super fast. Like real quick lie. Yeah, and so I think like, you know, it's better than really anything we got in desperation in terms of creature design or, you know, gore or any of that sort of thing. But that's the thing with Garrus is he he really makes like Halloween gore. It's it's it doesn't look particularly real um, or disturbing. It's more so just kind of like like um, cartoony and splattery, which I think kind of hurts a little bit. I mentioned this to Mel when we were watching when Joe is hit by the bus or whatever, mm-hmm. and uh, she's just this bloody mess, which I mean works, but his vision, like the way that he stages blood and gore, there's something cartoony about it that I think hurts a little bit when a guy's watching his wife bleed out on the ground. So yeah. it works better later. Yeah, the skeletons are cool. They look like though the skeletons from Army of Darkness. Like it, yeah. it has a yeah. comic effect or like to it. Return of the Living Dead. Yeah. Right. And then um and I thought the in the end Rosette gets stabbed in the neck uh and <laughs> Pierce is in out. such control that he's like, Kyra, don't look. I'm about to murder this woman. I know. <laughs> <laughs> and then he does it. I thought that that effect was cool. A good blood splatter, I think if you if it if done well, it's always effective. And I, I liked a good uh neck spray, so that worked. Worked a bit better than the puking the pu- like what did we say, Mel? Um, <laughs> I said that- that's you can tell that they didn't just have him hold it in his mouth, they hooked yeah. Up a sprayer, <laughs> yeah, and the way his body is framed, uh, you can tell that he's got a little, he's got an apparatus yeah. uh, somewhere where they can't see. Um, I almost wished it was as as graphic as uh, the lard ass sequence in Stand by Me, where it's just like this this uh, projectile vomit <laughs> that flies out of their mouths in this very yeah, cartoony that, way. Would have been funny. Me. I'm a I'm a empathetic puker. I don't get sick very often, but I have trouble watching other people get sick. And yeah, man, I feel like the last few that we've done, you know, like Lisi story. There's a lake lots water of vomiting, lots of puking in the King universe. Yeah, it's gross. Um, speaking of gross stuff, let's pivot over to our next uh, category: the cemetery. What's the bottom of the truth? Well, sometimes that is better. The person you put up there. Ain't the person that comes back. It may look like that person, but it ain't that person. Because whatever lives in the ground beyond that cemetery ain't human at all. Here in the cemetery, we talk about stuff that actually scared us. I can't imagine this will be a particularly long section, uh, but I will say Mel and I both uh, looked at each other and said, "Not bad." After the uh, the under the bed sequence near the beginning, when Mike peeked under, and this is also from the book where Joe says, uh, "Give me my dust catcher" or she whatever. Doesn't and she doesn't say that in the series. She doesn't say that, but she like basically shrieks and is pulled <laughs> yeah. into the darkness. Yeah, and it's a it's an effective sequence. I think we were both like, "Oh, all right, for a jump scare, that was pretty good." Mm-hmm. Um, and then I think some of those. The early, ju- I think some of the other subsequent jump scares, including when he's he's holding Maddie and then 
the back of her head is blown out, which is, which is some foreshadowing. But uh, a couple of those moments I think were effective, but then we just got boom, boom, boom in the triple fuck sequence. And, <laughs> and there was lost. no Shroud Creature. I was kind of literally looking forward to his take on that. Um, yeah, Shroud Creature is my favorite, is the scariest part of the book for me. And so not getting any of that was unfortunate. We got this, we got like the coffin sequence that you mentioned in his dream, uh, Flitter, where he just coffin. bangs his head against the coffin, <laughs> yeah. which... Which I think lost a little bit of uh, potency. It was a, a bit silly. Um, but Dan, anything that, that gave you the creeps in this? Um, I just think all the special effects were good. Um, yeah. You know, I, I like the the prosthetic work. I like the gore. You know, like you were saying, that's like what McGarris is good at. And like, it made the movie feel a lot more uh, scary than the book, which is kind of slow and pl- you know, it's it's more of a I don't know, it's like mental scares in the book, I guess. Whereas yeah. this was like, there are a lot of jump scares. The music, I think, amped up some of the scenes and made things feel like the clock was ticking a lot more than I recall from the book. Yeah, I'd say that. I think that that stuff is fun, but it really does strip away some of, you know, this book was marketed as a gothic horror uh, book. And, and that's not really, I think, the case with this series, which kind of uh, introduces that Tales from the Crypt style um uh, spooky ookiness to a story that King initially wrote to be a bit more gothic and a bit more I don't want to say subtle but there's a lot of you know in the book there's a lot of screams and the fridge magnets there's a lot of unseen sort of uh, tears in there whereas here we get these uh, very done up uh, ghosts and monsters that and the um, house as we've said never quite feels threatening like right yeah yeah because then the yeah. opening credits I actually have the opening credit sequence was pretty cool there's a lot of foreshadowing and a lot of like, oh, this is going to happen. Oh, I can't wait to see that. But I never really, yeah, they never really established the house other than like the windows blowing out and like getting the messy. bathroom was creepy. Like I can, re- I can yeah. remember just like the bareness of it and like that big tub that Kyra's yeah, in that by was the cool. end. Yeah. The records though being flung at him was pretty hilarious. <laughs> yes. Oh yeah. I, at that. I forgot yeah, about it was that. Just like, Cause it's one of those things where like, just get out of there. But instead he's just like stumbling over himself and he gets hit by like a he's dozen like, hey. records. <laughs> Hey, what, yeah. what, what is, hey, cut that out. <laughs> um, I think, I think sequence like that, sequences like that are just kind of like, that's like where I think Mick Garris's brain is just like, ah, we've gone too long without a scare. We got to do something. So mm-hmm. they just throw some records at Pierce. Oh, one thing though, that I thought that was a missed opportunity was during the rock throwing scene that I meant to mention, uh, it reminded me so much of Mrs. Doubtfire. It was a drive-by fruiting. Oh where yeah. He throws he throws the lime and it hits him in the head, and then this he gets hit in the head with a rock. And I was like, "Come on, you got to make a reference to Mrs. Doubtfire here." What a miss! I would have loved a reference to Mrs. Doubtfire. She just starts throwing limes at him. Um, it's, it's a drive-by rocking. Just com- <laughs> yeah, just completely like take away all the threat. That scene already <laughs> was so defanged. Just like start throwing in Mrs. Doubtfire references. Um, It'd be kind of cool, though, if instead of the way they did Rajette, if they just had Robin Williams, like, reprise yeah, this role as Mrs. Doubtfire, missed, and she could play that opportunity. role. Now, yeah. I really want to watch Mrs. Doubtfire now. Oh, it's a great movie. I love Pierce in it. He's, he's so dashing. Um, absolute, uh, I was absolutely horny for him when I was young. <laughs> absolute um, Tron. Yeah, seriously. Um, Mel, anything that scared you that we haven't touched on yet? No, I do think the most abrupt scare is when Maddie gets killed. Um I just sort of admired the, yeah, the suddenness of it and like just very graphic and that they were ki- <laughs> they were kissing during it. Like, okay. Yeah, that's got to um, be weird to be like kissing someone when their head gets blown off. Yeah. So that's, that would be mine. 
I wish Pierce talked about it. Uh, he's like, <laughs> I could feel the, the, I could smell the gunpowder through her nose. Um, that's fucked up. Okay. Uh, <laughs> yeah, you should let's, repurpose let's, that for something. <laughs> <laughs> let's pop on over to King's Dominion because there's a few fun references uh, in this to King's other work. There's another world out there. I know there is. Here in King's Dominion, we talk about how King's books and the worlds he's built throughout uh, his career uh, reverberate through his whatever this work is that we're discussing. In this case, it's uh, 2011's Bag of Bones, (laughs) and we get an early misery reference. Uh, Somebody says at a book signing of Mike's, he says, I'm your number one fan. And And then um, in case you didn't get it. Joe yeah. is like, I'll leave you with Annie Wilkes over there or whatever. Yeah, like yeah, direct says, reference to it. Have fun so. with Annie Wilkes here. And I, I love the, the contempt he has for his own fans. Like, the guy's <laughs> like, I'm a really big fan. I just purchased five year books, and he like rolls his eyes, like, oh, dear God. It's I feel like, like uh, I almost, um, there's a part of me that almost appreciates that. I feel like every podcast I listen to, uh, the, I would, the host would hate me if they ever met me in real life. So yeah. uh, I almost appreciate that. Um, yeah, sort of in a uh, Hollywood handbook, they reference, they call their fans the scum of the earth. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, and then also we get some King's Dominion with uh, Jason Priestley as Marty, uh, the literary agent. He's basically saying, he's like, Mike, you got to get a new book out. Uh, otherwise, you know, it's a crowded market. You're going to get swallowed. He's like, there's a new Patricia Cornwall. There's a new Tom Clancy. And oh, there's a new uncovered Bachman book. Uh, Richard Bachman, obviously, was Stephen King's pen name. Uh, so a fun little bit of goofiness there. Uh, there's also a bit, I can't remember exactly where, like, what the context of it was. But at one point, I think uh, uh, Mike makes a reference to the idea of getting asked, where do you get your ideas from? Mm-hmm. Which is famously King's least favorite question, does not like answering it. Um, so that, I think, was another fun little thing. I'm sure he's... he's uh, I'm sure he's commiserated with Mick about it for a while. Um, any a, others that I've missed? Yeah, Priestley had another one um, when he says uh, Scribner is very happy with the manuscript. Yes. And this is famously when he just moved to Scribner for the production or the publishing of Bag of Bones. Yeah. So I thought that was funny that they included that. Yeah. And also they mention they mention they did great on the cover, which makes me laugh because oh, Mel spent Mel spent some time in the last episode talking about how shitty the cover is uh, for the Bag of Bones. Someone book. posted a different cover on our Facebook, I think, and we use oh. it for one of the like our socials and it is better. I mean, it's still bad, but it's this alternate. This variant is better. Yeah, and I think when Mike is doing um, a crossword puzzle, he he hits upon Booyah Moon, which uh, references Lisey's story, which had come out, what, five years before this? So, uh, so yeah, some some modern King's Dominion in there. There's a Um, few more I found, too. Yeah, Um, let's hear them. So during during the jogging sequence, uh, when he's jogging around his property, he's listening to, like, a Walkman, and the lyrics say, it's time to take a stand. Oh, no shit. I didn't hear that. Um, And then we also have, obviously, Matt Frewer, the gay brother, as he was trash can man in yep. McGarris's The Stand. So a lot of, you know, other King universe. And also Pierce Brosnan was in the movie Lawnmower Man. Oh, yeah. What? I forgot he was in Lawnmower Man. Yeah, he's like the lead in that. He plays a doctor, right? The yeah, scientist. that movie's wild. Randall, I remember you laughing when 
there's like the opening to the jogging scene and the music in that scene. It sounds like the beginning of like a commercial for medication. Like we yeah. were like, is this a continuation of the movie or is this a commercial break? Is this a commercial? I actually literally just brought up my um my Shazam because I Shazammed what song it was because it sounded so fake. Like it sounded like an yeah. algorithm wrote it. It sounded like Christian rock. Yeah, yes. it's not, I said you that. You said, Chanel. I wonder what Christian rock song this is right now. <laughs> Well, it's a band called Arrows to Athens, and the song is called Alive. Um, yeah, that, I, that sounds like a Christian band. Yeah, but, that's a lot of. Um, anyways, funny. I was cracking up at some of that, but then they also had like uh, some 2011 indie rock in there. There was a song from the Stills, I believe, which were a band of that era. So yeah, some interesting um, something for everyone. Well, yeah, a little something Nicol- for Nicholas everyone. Nicholas Pike, he's done some other like he did um, the Stand miniseries soundtrack. Uh, oh, nice. he works with Garris a lot too, Nicholas Pike. Cool. Uh, any other King's Dominion? I think that's it. Uh, some fun ones, though. It's always nice to, to get some nods. Um, let's hop on over and give our final thoughts. Dad, can we go now? You ready? Yeah, we've been ready for an hour. <laughs> okay, I'll be right there. You said that a half hour ago. Yeah, my dad's weird. He gets like that when he's writing. Hey, it's time to give our final thoughts. Uh, we're going to give a bright red Pennywise Clown Nose ranking to this Bag of Bones miniseries, as well as the series MVP. Uh, Dan, I'm going to begin with you. Uh, let's hear it. Oh, where to begin? Uh, not my favorite of the miniseries adaptations. Like, I'm a huge fan of The Stand. I really like the original uh, McGarris version. This, however, just was, like we were saying, it was tonally kind of all over the place. There were some jump scares and some cool effects, but a lot of kind of downtime of me not caring. You know, it's hard to portray writer's block on the screen. It's because how do you portray nothing happening and make it interesting? Uh, I don't think Pierce is, again, able to pull off a solo scene. Like, I like when he interacts with other characters and actors, but just a lot of him kind of kicking around, not doing a whole lot. I think some of the changes, like getting rid of the lawyers were cool. I think getting rid of the fun house at the carnival was not cool. <laughs> For those reasons, I'm going to have to give it a two bright red Pennywise clown noses. And I guess my MVP is going to be the special effects department. I thought monsters were cool. The gore was cool. You know, Mick Garris still can make a scary movie. But maybe he should stick with making... Yeah, but I mean, <laughs> even maybe he should stick with like... Well, that's not an effect. That's a, that's a CGI. But uh, I'm saying like the practical, practical effects. Okay. Yeah, He's the practical a practical effects effect, cool. man. Yeah, but it's, it, it felt like watching, like I said, Tales from the Crypt or a creep show, which he does direct. I just think that that's his stronger suit than the miniseries. Yeah, cool. Mel, uh, nose ranking, MVP. There is just like part of me that wants to root for this miniseries, and that's probably just because I had a fun time watching it with yeah. Rock and Randall. <laughs> There was so much to just kind of laugh at um, that I don't think we were ever bored, but I do think I would have been bored if I had been alone. <laughs> yeah, I agree. I'm glad we watched it together because, uh, yeah, I, I I don't know if I would have found, like, the him mumbling to himself all the time. Like, I don't think I would have tapped into it yeah. if not for your enjoyment of right. it. Right. And I, God, Pierce, like, just a bad choice. Like, he just really can't sell it, um, even though he's trying I, I, one of the reasons I also want to root for it is because it does seem like they really considered the source material. They were working very hard to make it better. It, they had mm-hmm. clearly, you know, 
that's not like an easy book to sort of read and condense and plan around. And someone had to try and do it. And it didn't work, but I kind of just want to be like, nice try. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and yeah, it's it's all over the place. It's so scattered. It doesn't have a focus. I've, I've said all this earlier on the episode. Um, I am, like we were expressing this as we watched, like I am earnestly interested in how this would come off to someone who was not familiar with the source material. Would it yeah. come off as like this crazy nonsensical thing or, or is it something maybe a little more of a fun roller coaster ride that, than I would anticipate? I don't know. Can't ever know. Um, cause we came to the book first, but, um, you know, some good choices, some bad choices, and ultimately a very mediocre miniseries. I'm going to have to give it a uh, 1.5 and that 0.5 is just out of sheer personal enjoyment. <laughs> um, bright red Pennywise clown noses, um, MVP has got to be bathwater Maddie that materializes um, <laughs> at the end just because no one's mentioned her. Um, no, the real the real MVP is Gish. I think she actually does a does a good job. Yeah, um, I'm gonna give it two bright red Pennywise clown noses. A lot of it uh, is echoed in a lot of what you guys are saying because I agree that there is a really earnest attempt to tell a very convoluted story and but i think in doing in in this adaptation there is a defanging that's happening by taking out like the the idea of the of the the baked racism of this area and the idea of like the the sins of the you know the sins of the father being passed on the son like and the way that that ties into um uh I don't know the darkness that kind of thrums beneath the surface. I, I I feel like it's 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 they pulled back a lot from actually investigating the uh, the racial component of it, which I think is one of the more interesting things in the book um, and something that illuminates a lot about those kind of communities. Mm-hmm. Um, and you're mad about Max, Max Devore. <laughs> I'm mad about Max. He was also uh, defanged. <laughs> Yeah, I needed him to say more uh, really filthy words. They like it'd be funny if uh, it was on A and E, but they they left the dialogue the same, but like bleeped it out. You know, <laughs> like I, that would just be funny and amazing. But yeah, and then um, uh, but whereas I'm glad like they kind of took away some of the creepiness around Maddie and and did seem to make an effort to turn her into like where you could actually appreciate the character without her being defined by her age or her beauty, but. That's the problem was was they did that, but then they had no other real character meat to fall back on and, and they didn't uh, pursue, you know, the opportunities they did have. Uh, so disappointment there. And um, yeah, but there's kind of a bonkers quality to it that I appreciated that I think suits the material. Um, and Pierce is he's horrible, but <laughs> he also made it worth watching. Like like my MVP is is easily Pierce because <laughs> the the most fun I had was watching him just mumble and, and just murmur throughout this. Oh, Joe. Oh, you have no idea. What a day. What a day. Oh, if only you were here right now. Oh, like it was just very funny to me. And um, I wanted more of that. I think when. Uh, when he was screaming, I was like, no, just go look at a picture of Joe. Just talk yourself down, man. And so um, so Pierce, my MVP, two bright red Pennywise clown noses. Uh, Mick Garris, I'd love to see you take on another um, uh, these days just to see. I mean, I know. Like, try it's again. Like, 
try, I would love to see you try again because I don't think anybody loves King's work as purely as McGarris does. And and you know he was he was the pure, the King purist back when the more cynical uh, studios were 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 making really shitty adaptations of his work. And and yeah, you know it's it's hit or miss with Garris, but but at least you can tell he always loves the material yeah, and he really believes I, in the books. Yeah, I I agree. Like I, I really like how committed he is, and I think he understands what his role is in adapting these. And that, you know, but he can get it in with that budget that they provide. And I really want to see him adapt Elevation. I just read that recently, and I think he would be good for that. Yeah, sure. Mick Garris's Elevation, let's speak it into truth. Uh, well, this was fun, y'all. Thanks for gabbing about bags, bags of bones. Uh, bag, <laughs> bag and gab. gab. Yeah, <laughs> and uh, this was fun. If you haven't listened to our book episodes, uh, please do. They're in the feed right now. Lots of other fun stuff on the way. Um, yeah, thanks for listening. Long days. Days. And, and pleasant. Pleasant nights. nights. I got some hot friends. God, I got some hot friends. I got some hot friends. God, I got some hot friends. But you know you want somebody to treat you good. This is the end of our show. For now. We hope you enjoyed this production. If you like our programming, consider searching for other bloody disgusting podcasts, such as Creepy, Horror Queers, The Boo Crew, SCP Archives, Nightlight, Margaret's Garden, and more. Murder in America is a true crime podcast that covers stories from all 50 states, including stories of mass shootings, serial killers, and lesser-known murders. Do you find yourself doing more research after listening to a true crime show? Well, Courtney and I used to do the same thing, and that's why we created Murder in America. Our podcast dives deep into each case. Our storytelling will make you feel like you're right there within the case with us, watching it all play out, and we do not shy away from the graphic details. If you're a fan of true crime, then listen to Murder in America on Spotify now.